A very good morning. <laughs> How are you all doing this morning? You excited for the word? This side is excited. What about this side? Are you excited for the word? Yes, the word is so powerful. I really love the word because it said, someone said, word of God is such, it's like swimming in Indian Ocean. When you stretch your hand, you don't have to be scared of touching the shore. When you deep dive, you don't have to be scared of touching the bottom. The more you swim, the more you discover, and the world is still discovering where MH-177 flight is, and they've still not been able to discover. The Word of God is much uh, deeper than that, and that's what we're going to do. You know, every letter in the book of Revelation, or the seven letters, we find one thing that's very common. It says, let him who has ears hear what the Spirit of God has to say to the churches. So do we have ears this morning? Can we pray like Pastor Victor shared the word last week that spiritual blindness will be removed. And I believe we need to pray for spiritual deafness also to be removed. Can we pray and ask the Lord to speak to our hearts and say, Lord, would you minister to me personally? Give me that Rema word. Give, give us the word for the church. He who has ears, let him hear what the Spirit is to say to the churches, to us as Adonai, to the churches that are listening to this word online, to those of us who are representing other churches here today. Let us ask the Lord to speak to our hearts. Father, this morning we are so grateful to you for your goodness and mercy. And Lord, this morning we thank you for the power of your word. And thank you, you're so concerned about your church that you come down to dictate a letter to John so that he could write and pass it on, Lord. And that church's letters is still relevant for us. Would you minister to us? Open our ears, Lord, this morning that we may hear you speak to us. We thank you, we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, before I got married, when I was a bachelor... I had a certain perception of myself, and I'm sure each one of us had perception of yourself. Even now, each one of us have a certain perception of ourselves. And you think you're not such a bad guy. No, you've been doing a lot of Bible study. I've been going around ministering to people as a bachelor, all zealous for God, and uh, doing my work very sincerely, managing my finance well, and you know, all kinds of perceptions we carry about ourselves, don't we? I too carried a lot of good perception about myself. And if you consider this balloon as my perception about myself, and what happened, all this perception was brewing within me, and then I got married. When I got married, my wife brought a different perception of me, which I was not aware of. And I was like, is this true? It was a reality, a bitter pill to swallow sometimes when you come so close to another person who sees you differently and sees the things that you don't see in yourself. And then we as a couple began to build ourselves. We did a lot of family ministry, parenting courses, this and that, read tons of books. And we thought we were not so bad parents, you know. And we were... We, were, we just held some perception about ourselves. And then our children became teenagers. 
and the perception just broke. <laughs> the reality is whatever they said is true. It's just that we were not aware of what was happening for us. It was the same thing with the church of Sardis. The, you know we are doing a series on the book of Revelation, the seven letters. The church of Sardis had a certain perception about themselves. They thought they were not doing so bad. They were doing so well, everything. And then comes this letter from Jesus, which gives God's perception that burst that balloon that they had, burst the perception that they had to say, you are not what you think. Before we dive into the church of Sardis today, let's recap what we've been doing. We've been doing the seven letters. We are in the fifth of the seven letters now. We have two more to go. We know the book of Ephesus was, the, not the book of Ephesus, sorry. The letter to the church of Ephesus was about Jesus addressing how they moved away from first love. They were a busy church. They were an activity-oriented church, but they did activities without love. The second letter was to the church of Smyrna, and church of Smyrna was a persecuted church, but yet a faithful church, a church to which Jesus brought no correction, a church that he commended for holding on to the faith of what they had. Then we looked at the church at Pergamum, the compromising church. Then we looked at the church at Thyatira that was a tolerant church, tolerating the spirit of Jezebel and not willing to correct, not willing to confront, not willing to deal with the spirit of Jezebel within the church. That's what we looked at. <coughs> Today, we will look at the church of Sardis, a little bit of a background. If we can have the map on, please. A little bit of a background. Yeah, we see the map here. We see from Ephesus to Smyrna to Pergamum. We've gone up to Thyatira. And 40 miles from there is the city of Sardis. You know the postal route that was there. It's like a river view. It's like a postman is going delivering these letters that were sent by John from the island of Patmos, dictated by Jesus himself. And he's going to deliver these letters one by one. And what about Sardis do we know? Sardis was a rich city. It was a rich city known for its gold and silver. In fact, Sardis was one of the first cities in 700 BC to come up with coinage system, the coin system. Even today, you will, if you go to the museum in London, you will find these coins present there. I've got one picture of it for you to see later. These coins are there. And this coinage system was uh, done, and there was this King Croesus. Now, this King Croesus was so rich he said, I don't want my riches to be taken away by others. So what did he do? He went up a hill. If you can put up that picture, please. He went up this cliff here. If you see this cliff, it was almost perpendicular on three sides. And there was only one path in which anybody could go. And that path was always guarded. So he put up the city on top and made the city impregnable. Nobody could attack the city because it was almost perpendicular on three sides. Nobody could climb. And one side which had an angle at which they could climb up, it was always guarded. So King Croesus thought he is impregnable, he is safe, he is so good, he's got all his riches, he's got everything that he wants, and he set this up right on the hill. But little did he know that, you know, his impregnable attitude that was there would be conquered one day. King Cyrus in 549 BC, 
King Cyrus of Persia in 549 BC came and laid a siege around these hills. And while they were waiting to discover how to attack this, they found a soldier right on top, sleeping. As he slept, his helmet fell off. <laughs> when his helmet fell off, they noticed that this guy walked down a set of stairs, picked up his helmet, went up and wore his helmet and he sat down. Then they knew there is a way to go up there. What happened is that King Cyrus sent all his troops to the other side so that they can create a ruckus there. And all of King Croesus' armies went there to deal with the ruckus when few of the King Cyrus's army went in through this path, which was the secret pathway, and conquered the city of Sardis. And this did not happen only once. It happened later on in about 3rd century BC when... <clears throat> Uh, the, one of the Greek, uh, Greek guys, Antiochus the Great Three, captured the city in the same method that was there. Now this city is receiving a letter from Jesus when it's on the decline. It had its glory days, but they were living in the reputation of the past glory days. And now it's on a spiritual decline, and it's on decline even in other ways. Now, the church at Sardis is sort of become a representative of what was happening historically in the city. What was that? It was this, that they became so comfortable, they thought they're impregnable. Nobody can touch us. We are so good. We have our riches. We are safeguarded. Where nothing can happen to us. They became so self-confident that they began to continue to live in, in a very complacent life. Now, Sardis is also known. I'm giving you the background. You'll understand when we read the letter why I'm giving you the background. Sardis is also known for the Temple of Artemis. Now, Temple of Artemis, if you know Book of Acts, when you read Ephesus, you read about Artemis. The goldsmiths who made the Artemis statues, who silversmith who created a ruckus and Paul almost got killed there. This king or god Artemis, uh, there was a huge temple there and beside the temple was a gymnasium. Beside the gymnasium was a synagogue. Now, this synagogue was the largest synagogue in the ancient world. It could accommodate in those days about 1,000 people. Now, what is unique about the synagogue was this. When people excavated and found out, they found in the synagogue the names of Jews was written in Greek. <laughs> now, now, that's not acceptable to any Jew. You know, even when the king of Babylon changed the name of Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and Daniel, they held on to their Hebrew names. Because for them, having that Hebrew thing was a very, very uh, crucial thing. And they found engraving of a, of, of a synagogue in which you could evidence a mixture of culture that was happening. That means they were trying to get along with the culture. They were just trying to get along so that they can live a peaceful life. And to this church is what Jesus is addressing. So this was a church which said, let's get along with the people around. If they say Caesar is God, we will not object them. They did not put their foot down and say, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. <laughs> They said, they believe in their God, we believe in our God, let's just get along, do the business, retain our riches, we need to be impregnable as we are. And to this church, Jesus writes this letter. Can we all read this together? 
Revelation chapter 3, verse 1 to 6. Only six verses, but powerful six verses. Let's look at them. Can we all read this loud, please? And to the angel of the church at Sardis write, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. The next word, wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you have received and heard and keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know what hour I will come against you. Names of you in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. Verse 5. And the one who conquers will be clothed, thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before the angels. And verse 6. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. First, let's look at the portrait of what Jesus is portrayed as. We see this. He says that the one and the eight, unto the angel of the church of Sardis write the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Now, what is the seven spirits of God? We need to understand this is not talking about God having multiple spirits, but rather it talks about the wholeness of the Holy Spirit. When we read Isaiah chapter 11 and verse 2, Isaiah chapter 11 verse 2, it says, And the Spirit of the Lord shall firstly rest upon him. The second is the Spirit of wisdom. Third is the Spirit of understanding. Fourth is the Spirit of counsel. Five is the Spirit with might and the Spirit of knowledge and of the fear of God. The seven characteristics of the Holy Spirit that shows forth that the Holy Spirit is whole. <coughs> I told you in, in early on that number seven implies completeness in the book of Revelation and in the Bible in general. It talks about the completeness. So what he's saying is for us to live our Christian life in a culture where, where it is very difficult, where everybody seems to be thinking that they're impregnable, in a society where everybody is thinking it is okay to get along, it's okay to compromise, it is okay to tolerate, it is okay to not put your foot down. What God is saying is, I have the spirit of God and he is the spirit of knowledge. He is the spirit of wisdom. He is the spirit of might and I am willing to give that to you so that you can live a life for me. He is saying his Holy Spirit is available for us. And that's what the, God, the Lord is saying to us. And he goes on to talk about the seven stars. We looked at the seven stars, didn't we? In the book of Ephesians, the letter written to the Ephesus, we saw he who holds the seven stars and who moves among the lampstands. Chapter 2 and verse 1, we read that. What did it mean when the seven stars, what did it mean there? You remember, we looked at the interpretation in chapter 1. It talks about the seven messengers to the churches, basically referring to the 
pastors of these churches or leaders of these churches. That's one aspect of the interpretation. But when we look at another aspect also, Jesus when he writes or John when he writes these, he gives a duality of meaning. There is something that's to the context of what's happening, but that also implies something else that is happening elsewhere. If you look at the picture of the coin that is here, the coin, you will see on one side is the bust of Domitian, the king. Domitian had a son. On the other side, you will find Domitian's son on a globe sitting. You're not able to see very clearly. On top of Domitian's son are seven stars that are there. And what it meant is Domitian was trying to declare, I'm not only the king of Rome, but I'm also the god of the world. And he was trying to say, my generation will continue to be the gods and goddesses. Now in that context, Jesus is coming and saying, hey, listen, it's no Domitian, no Domitian's son who's going to rule the world. It is I who holds the stars. It is I who holds the world. It is I who holds the messengers of God in my hand. Don't worry to put your foot down. Don't worry to Take a stand for what is the truth because it is not Domitian but it is me who holds you in my hand. And that's the assurance Jesus is bringing through the portrait that he brings here. Number one, the Holy Spirit of God is available for us to live our lives. Number two, to know that he is still sovereign. And this theme of God being sovereign is so clear in all the seven letters. We will also see this in the book, letter written to Philadelphia, that we will see how he is the one who is in control and he is the one who has authority. My friends, as a church, we need need to learn. As a believer, we need to know that our God is a sovereign God. Our God is the one who is in control. Our God is the one who has the ultimate authority. So don't succumb to fear of people. Don't succumb to fear of authority in this world. Don't succumb to rising powers around the world where leaders are rising up to push the church down, to oppress Christianity. Nothing will happen. Millennium after millennium, people have tried to crush the church. They have gone, but the church still remains because Jesus is still in control and he is the one who has the authority. And that's the encouragement we get from the portrait of Jesus. Let's go on to look at verse 1 and the second part of it. You know, this letter is a little different from the other letters because there is no commendation in this letter. There is no appreciation. It straight goes into correction in the very first verse. What does it read? Verse 1 and 8 it says, I know your works. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Why don't you turn to somebody and say, what's your reputation? <laughs> I can see some smiles. I don't know if you're smiling at the other person or smiling at yourself. <laughs> All of us carry a certain reputation, don't we? We think we are good enough. We think we are doing not bad. We think we are doing good. 
But God is saying, in your own perception, you have a reputation of being alive. But you are dead. Now the church at Sardis did not have corrections of the teachings of the Nicolaitans. It did not have corrections of the spirit of Jezebel. This was not a bad church. In reality, this was not a bad church. They had their programs. They met in the synagogue regularly. They had their services. They did their ministry. They were busy with a lot of activities. There were programs that were there. Whether progress was there or not, they had the programs going on. And we see this church fell because there's activities Monday to Saturday. Sundays we have a beautiful worship. Our calendar for the year is filled up. We are so busy with doing a lot of things for God. They thought they were alive. But Jesus, like I put that pin into that balloon, burst that perception and say, you are dead. How many of us would want to receive such a letter from Jesus? <laughs> Are you willing to let that bubble burst today about yourself? Are we? You know, when I was, uh, <clears throat> when I was meditating on this, few things that came to my mind, I think the church has the highest temptation to get along the world nowadays compared to ever before. You know, there was a very famous pastor who was interviewed on CNN few years back, and he was asked a question, a very simple question. Do you believe Jesus is the way? Do you believe Jesus is the way? And all Christians hoped he would say yes and make use of that opportunity to say yes, Jesus is the only way because he's a famous pastor. Many would have believed. But unfortunately, this pastor said, for me, he's the way, but I can't say the same for the others. He said it's for each one to determine what they want to. But for me, he is the way. That shook the Christian church all over the world. There was such an uproar. Thank God, after a month, <clears throat> this person clarified and said he does believe Jesus is the way. But the damage had already been done. <clears throat> Some churches today, my friends, in the name of ecumenical movement in the name of unity, in the name of interfaith unity have begun to proclaim and say, let's come together. We need to not have anything that divides us. If Jesus is the way is what you claim, it's a dividing factor because for someone else, Jesus is not the way. Logically, do you think they'll go to hell? No way. Let's have peace together. So where is the church moving towards today? It's moving towards saying peace and oneness and unity among the people. Ecology, sustainability, unity is more important than claiming exclusivity. The Roman times were such when the letter was written to the church of Sardis, you could, it was a multi polytheistic society. It was a multicultural society. You could do whatever you want as long as you don't claim exclusivity. My friends, Christianity has always stood as a, as a, as a I won't call it a religion, as followers who claim exclusivity. As people who say Jesus is the way, the truth, 
and the life. And we don't compromise on that truth. We still take a stand no matter what the cost is. I will look at the characteristics as we go along. How many of you read the book The Animal Farm by George Orwell? Okay, few of you. Very few of you. Okay. If you want, please read his book 1984 also. It's very prophetic. He wrote it in 1949, but it talks about almost like artificial intelligence, which didn't exist then, where everybody is monitored for whatever he or she is doing. But Animal Farm was a political satire written before that by George Orwell. <clears throat> it's a book which is about this manor farm, a manor farm that is there, the animal farm, the animal farm was like any other farm, except this farm had a drunkard owner, Mr. Jones, and the and incompetent people who couldn't manage the animals. And so the animals were always under oppression. So what the animals decided together is they said, hey, listen, this man is no good, and this, his servants are not good. So they rebelled against the boss. They rebelled against the servants of Mr. Jones and they pushed all of them out and they said, we are going to take over the farm. And they did in the story. They took over the farm and the pigs who were wiser than the others, they began to rule. Mr. Snowball Pig and Mr. Napoleon Pig, they began to rule. They began to set the rule. And they wrote down seven commandments that the animals have to follow, that they don't become like the other farms, which is ruled by humans. And one of the commandments was, we will not let any human being into this farm. <laughs> and the second commandment was, that all the animals have to always go on their fours, never on their twos. The third commandment was that they'll not sleep in the farmhouse or have parties like their human masters did, but they will always have this oneness and they will have this, you know, equality among themselves. But over a period, what happened, the pigs began to take more and more and more reins and they began to break each one of those seven commandments that were there and they changed it slowly one by one. And the irony is, they also set up a contract along with Mr. Pillington, who was a farmer next door. And they came together and they were partying. And this is how the book ends. I read this. Now, there's a party going on. They're playing games. Mr. Pillington and the pigs are playing games as the watchdogs are watching. And there's a, there's a big, big noise that is there. So the rest of the animals are coming in to see what is happening. And as they peep through the farmhouse, and this is what he says, voices shouting in anger, they were all alike. The creatures outside looked from pig to man, and from man to pig, and, the, and from pig to man again, but already it was impossible to say which was which. <laughs> they couldn't differentiate who was a pig and who was a man. My friends, isn't this the story of the church? The church was called with specific commandments to live by. The church was called to be separate from the world. The church was called to live out a different life. But what has happened over a period, the church has got so got along with the world, so intermingled with the world, they will become so common when the people outside peer at us and look, they can't make out Christian, no Christian. Christian, no Christian. It's impossible to say which is which in the words of George Orwell. My friends, we are called to stand out. 
Second Timothy chapter 3 verse 5 says this about the church. It says, you know, having a form of godliness but denying its power from such people turn away. Christians have begun to put on a form of godliness. We speak the right language. <laughs> we speak the, we sing the right songs. We, we, we greet each other in the some way. We maintain the religious activities. All form of godliness, but the spirit is missing. The power is missing. Now I wanted to first do qualities of a dead church. Then I said, no, <laughs> that sounds very negative. Instead, let's look at what are the qualities of an alive church. How do you know if you're sitting on the fence and saying, I want to make a choice of the church, how will you know? I believe there are many more, but I believe these three dimensions are critical for us to understand. I put it in a very easy way so that we remember this. One is the upward dimension of the church to say whether it's alive or not. The second is the inward dimension of the church to say whether it's alive or not. The third is the outward dimension of the church to say whether it's alive or not. Now if you see the right hand side arrow which talks about the red color, what is this upward dimension? You will see all the arrows are having two sided arrows. I'll explain what that means. What is this upward dimension? We are talking about an upward dimension where there's worship and glorifying of God within the church. Now, I'm not talking about singing. I'm not talking about music. I'm not talking about nice songs. I'm not talking about that adrenaline rush that we feel when a good worship leader leads and there is jumping and there is dancing and you go back saying, wow, what a service, but nothing changes within you. You have not got a better glimpse of God than what you had before. I'm talking about a worship where we get a glimpse of the glory of God when we come together. We are talking about where God not only is lifted up in this place, glorified in this place, where God's presence descends into this place. Where each of us goes back from here saying, Lord, I came in one, one way, but I'm going back another because your presence has touched me. An alive church is not a church that just has program. It is not a church which just has worship nights. It's a church where God is glorified. Where God is lifted up. My friends, I, I don't know if you know, there are many churches where you can go in and say, yes, there is worship. But I want to tell you, there's only singing. There's only music. There's only, only good instruments. There are good worship leaders, but is God getting glorified within that church? And that's the question. A life church is a church which is God-centered. Which is God-centered. Like Pastor Victor said last week, you know, where the spiritual eyes, where our spiritual eyes are open, where we come and get a glimpse of the glory of God. Hallelujah. The inward dimension is this. What is the inward dimension? This is also a two-way. Number one, it's about how do the people within the church grow? Are the people within the church stagnant? Are the people within the church getting disciples? Are they growing together? If we are not growing as a congregation, when I'm talking about growing, I'm not talking about we are 500 today and tomorrow we become 1,000. 
I'm not talking about that growth. I know of many churches where it is 10,000 infants within the church. <laughs> They're focused so much on evangelism, evangelism, evangelism. They bring the people and the people don't know what to do next. There is no growth of the believers within the church. We are talking about a life church is a church where believers constantly grow in the Lord. Not only do they grow, but they become a community. A community where we have fellowship. When there's a crisis, the church is there. When there's a celebration, the church is there. We are such a community. Like it said in the book of Acts, they had all things in common. They stood for each other. When the church got persecuted, everybody got hurt. Everybody got on their knees and prayed. Not just a few. And a life church with an inward dimension. The third is an outward dimension. Now the outward dimension has two aspects again. One is the sharing of the gospel. We share the gospel with the world outside there. But then the second dimension, we also pray and ask the power of the Holy Spirit to get the people into the church. So that our church grows also in numbers. Not because of the churches to grow, but also so that the kingdom of God is established on the face of the earth. <clears throat> Thank God for Adonai. We have all these three dimensions active in one way or the other. Like we saw about the pastor's conference, we are not only blessing our own church locally, but we are blessing churches around the world. <clears throat> but if you are a person sitting here and asking, saying, how do I know whether the church is alive? Upward, inward, outward dimensions. Very simple to remember. But the question to ask ourselves is also this. Am I an alive Christian? <laughs> Am I an alive Christian? Now you can be in a live church, but still dead. Is that a possibility? Yeah? We can be in a very live church, but still be dead. <clears throat> Question is, are you a living Christian in the Lord? Few things, I'll just leave these questions with us to think about. An alive Christian, few things, upward dimension. Number one is passion for worship. Now I'm not talking again about adrenaline rush. I'm talking about being able to worship God as a corporate body, but also in the private in the private. Are we a worshipping Christian? Do we have that glimpse of God? Question to ask ourselves is this. Do we feel the presence of God when we worship? Do we feel God and get a fresh revelation of who He is? <clears throat> Number two. A life Christian persists in prayer. Persists in prayer. Now prayer when I'm talking about, I believe prayer is beyond words. <laughs> Maybe we'll teach on prayer sometime. Prayer is beyond worth. Prayer is connecting with the heart of God. Prayer is, you know, God knowing our heart and we knowing his heart so that we can commune together. My friends, I don't know when was the last we heard God speak to us. I'm not talking about speaking to the congregation. I get a word, I come and share. I'm talking about God speaking to me personally. What changes I have to bring within me as a leader, as whatever God has called. Number three, very quickly, gratitude. <laughs> gratitude. You know what gratitude helps us to see? Gratitude helps us to see God being in control. 
If you're not grateful, you're taking God for granted. Are we grateful for the life we have? Are we grateful for the health we have? Are we grateful for the safety we have? Are we grateful for the family that we have? Are we grateful for the church we have? Are we grateful for the shelter we have? Are we grateful for the vehicles we have? Are we really, do you really mean it when you say, thank you Lord for this food? <laughs> or do you cliched prayer, pray saying, oh thank you Lord for this food? That will show in our attitude of gratitude. Where do we stand in our attitude of gratitude? Ask yourself every now and then this question. What's my gratitude quotient? <laughs> GQ. What is my gratitude quotient? Let's move on to the inward dimension. I'm rushing because we don't have too much time. Desire to know God more through his word. The inward dimension. You know my friends, when we read the word, it's not for the sake of reading the word. It's, I mean, I'm glad. I am happy about one year finished reading the Bible. We need to read it. We need to get the discipline of reading. No doubt. We need. With the discipline comes the ability to learn to hear God. We need it. Okay? So please maintain the discipline of reading the Word. But while you're maintaining the discipline, the question to ask ourselves is this. When I'm reading the Word, am I expecting God to speak to me or no? It's a living word of God. It's not just a printed word of God. If you're not expectant, when, you, when we read the word of God, if we are not expectant, we need to ask the Lord and say, Lord, better start speaking to me. Number two, is our relationship growing? Or is it stagnant? Personally, ask ourselves this question. We were something in the month of January 2023. Now we are in September 2023. Have we grown? If you are same as what we were in January 2023, we are not a live Christian. We are a dead Christian only with a reputation. Number three of the inward dimension, sensitive to God's voice and his presence. One is God speaks to us through his word, yes. But are we also sensitive when we go around through the day, God's consciousness of being able to hear him speak to us on a constant basis, being able to hear. Outward dimension, three points and we will go fast. Take a risk for God. When was it last that we took a risk for God? When was it last? Some of us don't even take a risk of praying before eating when you're in office. <laughs> you know, I had a colleague who used to pray like this and he'll start eating. <laughs> And you won't believe there are people who come and come to me and said, are you a believer? I'll ask you, how do you know? I saw you praying in the canteen. Simple thing. It's not a risk. You're not going to lose your job. <clears throat> Don't worry. Learning to take that risk for God. Learning to take that stand to say when people are discussing things that don't match with your values, which are based on the biblical values, are we able to say, no, sorry, I don't agree with that. I have a different value. Taking a risk for God. Witnessing. When was it last that we shared the gospel with someone? When was it last when we put our foot down and said, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life? Desire to fellowship with God's people is the last of the outward dimension. Why do I say this? We don't come to church just to worship 
and to listen to the word. We also come for fellowship. If you're one of those who comes and quietly runs away, <clears throat> what Christian are you? I won't say it. But if you're an alive Christian, you will stay back, fellowship, hear the testimonies of what God is doing in others' life. Share your testimonies of what God is doing in your life. Share prayer requests with one another and support one another and grow together. It's almost time and we've just done verse 1. Shall we go on? Just give me five more minutes and we'll be done. The rest of the verses. Let's go on to call to action. What is Jesus calling? Verse 2. Can we have verse 2 please? Verse 2. He gives five things that we need to do if we are a dead Christian. Number one, wake up. <laughs> a slumbering church, wake up. <laughs> you know, it's like coming and shaking you up and saying, wake up. Wake up. Enough of sleeping. Wake up and strengthen what remains. Number two, about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of God. He does a call to wake up. And verse three, it says, remember. Remember then what you received and heard and keep it. My friends, remembering is a cognitive activity. Remembering is a choice that we make. Remembering what God has done in our lives. Don't wait for a spiritual revelation to remember. It's a choice you make to say where we started. As a church, I believe we all need to make it a practice that every year we read the gospel at least once. Every year we read the book of Acts only at least once so that we understand where the church began. We understand what was the story behind the birth of the church. We understand what were the values by which the church lived in the early church so that we can remember and we can keep it, we can obey it and we can live by it. Hallelujah. Make that commitment saying, Lord, I will read the gospel and the book of Acts every now and then so that I will remember what I learned and I will keep it. Because the church, if not, has the danger of becoming like a church at Sardis thinking we are doing well. Our programs are running well. We are active in church. Our calendar is full. But we don't realize we moved away from what the God meant the church to be. We move away from what God has called us as Christians to be. Let's read on. Verse 3 to 4, we'll, we'll, 4 to 5. We'll look at the promise. Yet you still have few names in Sardis. You know, I, I like it. This is almost like commendation. Jesus is writing this letter saying, You guys are dead. But he takes notice of the few. <laughs> My friends, if you are one of those who feels alone, having been taking a stand for God, and you lived your life for God, and you feel, oh, nobody notices, Jesus knows it. And here he's saying, yet you have few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, people who are not given into sin, people who are not given into compromise, people who have taken a stand against the culture. And it says, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. Wow. Can you imagine the white robe? He's talking about the future when Jesus will come and take us. My friends, you and me will be clothed in the robe of righteousness of Christ Jesus. And that robe is a white robe. And we will walk with Jesus. Hallelujah. 
We will walk with Jesus. And I like it. Verse 5, it says, The one who conquers will be clothed, does in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will never blot his name. Now, I just want to clarify here. <clears throat> this is not talking about a person losing salvation. This is not a letter written to an individual. This is a letter written to the church as a whole. Okay, so we are talking about God saying there is a registry that was maintained in the Roman book. Romans maintained a book. And in that book, they will maintain the names of all who are alive. It's like a census book today. And God is saying, I have a book of alive Christians with me. And there, their name is written and it will never be blotted out. My friends, this is not a simple thing that can be a teaching by itself. Because you remember when Jesus sent out the disciples, you know, anointed them, sent out. They went and did miracles after miracle. They came back excited, sharing the stories of the miracles what happened, how the demons obeyed them, how sicknesses fled. I know what Jesus said. He said, good boys, good. But rejoice that your name is written in the book of life. That's a greater thing than the miracle. Your name being written in the book of life is much higher value than the demons fleeing when you shout. Demons will flee not because of you. They flee because of the name of Jesus. But your name being written in the book of life, my name being written in the book of life is something that we can say, thank you, Lord. Thank you. And he will confess our name before his father and before him. You know, I just want us to be encouraged with this to say, Lord, I had a certain reputation about myself. But today, there are some questions I gave. Please go back home, write it down, and evaluate where you stand. Those questions to say, am I an alive Christian? Maybe for some of us, the balloon will burst. <laughs> Maybe for some of us, it may say there are few in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. And we may be the ones who will walk with Christ. And I want us to be encouraged today to say, Lord, I don't want to just live for reputation. I don't care what the people think about us. I don't care what people think about me. People think about Adonai Church. But we, Lord, want to be concerned about what you think about us. What you think about us. And my friends, God comes to commend us even if we are few, to say, I know the names of those few people in Sardis. And he wants to encourage us. Don't, don't live your Christian life for the sake of pastor. Don't live your Christian life. Don't come to worship because somebody will ask you why you didn't come to church. Come because you're an alive Christian. Come because the fullness of the Holy Spirit is available for us. Come because he holds the stars in his hand and he is in control. Come because he is the one who moves among the lampstands of the church and he is ever present here. Come because you want to get a better glimpse of who Jesus is. Come because you want to glorify God together with the other God's people where each one is alive in Christ and we live our life for Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Shall we all stand together and make that commitment to Christ saying, Lord, we need you. Let's make this commitment saying, Lord, we need you.
Would you close your eyes, my friends? Let's close our eyes and look to the Lord and say, Lord, let me know. Speak to me this morning, Lord. Open my eyes. He who has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, what the Spirit says to the believers within the churches. Am I a dead Christian or am I an alive Christian? Let us ponder how's your outward dimension? How's your worship? How's our glorifying God? How's our taking a stand for God? How's our hunger to know God more? How's our gratitude quotient? How's our growth in the Lord? If we are not growing, would we repent today? Like Jesus said, wake up, strengthen, repent, keep it. What you heard in the beginning, remember. Would you say, Lord, like the church to the Ephesus when he wrote saying, return to the first love. Can we return to the first teachings? Can we return to our first experiences of God and say, God, I want to experience you more. I want to experience you more, Lord. My friends, if you, if you want to cry out to God saying, Lord, I'm hungry for you. Lord, enough of this complacency. Enough of this coldness. Enough, Lord, of just going through the motions of Christianity. Enough, Lord, of just being, Lord, just, just, just surviving. Say to the Lord, Lord, I want to not survive, but I want to thrive. I want to thrive in you, Lord. I want to thrive in you, Lord. Would you draw me closer? Would you help me to live beyond the reputation? Would you help me to come alive from inside out? Would you help me to come alive from the inside out? I want us to be remembered that the Holy Spirit of God, the wholeness of the Holy Spirit of God, who rests upon us, who is the spirit of strength, who is the spirit of might, who is the spirit of knowledge, who is the spirit of wisdom, he is available for us. Would you say, Holy Spirit, come down and would you fill me? In those dark areas, would you shed your light? Holy Spirit, in my weaknesses, would you, Lord, fill me with your strength? Father, we are so grateful to you for this day. Lord, we don't want to be dead Christians. We don't want to be dead church. Lord, every day, every moment, every second of our lives, we want to bring glory to you. Lord, it's all about you. Sorry about what we made Christianity to be. Sorry about not walking closer to you on a day-to-day -day basis. Thank you for the invitation to walk with you in white robes. Lord, help us that we will not get along, but we will take our stand for who you are in our lives, Lord. Help us not to be get-along Christians. Help us, Lord, to be Christian who take a stand for you wherever you have placed us, Father. We thank you, we praise you, O God. In Jesus' mighty name we pray, Father. Amen. Amen.